I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. To improve the long-term value of biopharmaceutical companies, management should learn to think more like activist investors, according to a new report from EY. The report argues that capital allocation and strategic decision-making could benefit from company leaders setting aside their assumptions and challenging themselves by thinking more like outsiders. We spoke to Jeff Green, Global Life Sciences Transaction Advisory Services Leader for EY, about the report what industry executives could learn from activists, and whether shareholder activists indeed have a track record worth emulating. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Danny, thanks very much for having me. EY just issued a report on capital allocation strategies in the life sciences, an interesting topic given the way this industry in recent years has wrestled with the concept of value in its various forms. Your argument here is that management needs to think more like shareholder activists to bring more rigor to capital allocation strategies. Perhaps, though, we should start with shareholder activists. What would you say their impact has been on the life sciences and how good a track record do they have at unlocking value? Well, uh, it's a great question, Danny. Um, I think that we've seen a growing influence from uh, activist shareholders across industries, including in our industry over the last few years. Um, I, I think their track record has been generally pretty good of late. I think part of part of what's been driving their influence has, has been their, their res- the results they've achieved at certain companies. Um, they've attracted more money to their funds, dire- you know, directly into their funds, but also they've, to the extent that they've been able to make a, uh, a compelling case for their proposed changes at companies, they've been able to bring, in some cases, uh, larger, uh, traditionally more passive institutional investors along. Um, and if it, even if it comes to a shareholder vote, um, that they, they are getting such support in, in certain cases. So I think it's been an increase in, you know, decent, you know, good, good to decent results. Um, you know, attracting and uh, with their arguments, share, uh, the, the institutional shareholders. And then we've also seen companies, you know, realizing the, the validity of the activist arguments in some cases, not fighting, but in fact accommodating and, uh, and, and compromising in terms of board representation and even management actions have been taken on the basis of initial approach and initial suggestions from the activists. How big an opportunity do activists have today to exploit gaps between the intrinsic value of a company and the market value? Does does the run-up in the sector increase these opportunities? Do they stay relative to, to the market because it's always going to be the, the bottom X percent that that have that opportunity? Yeah, I, I think in general, the, the increase in stock prices across the board has, has reduced the percentage of the delta, if you will, between intrinsic value. And, and market value, but there still are some opportunities that haven't been fully exploited. You think about some of the larger biopharma companies that still have work to do around rationalizing their cost structure, 
um, we, we, we could see activists, you know, kind of intervene there and, and suggest that the cost, cost reduction programs could happen faster. Um, I think that the, the other thing that's been a bit of a, uh, a deterrent on more, more, uh, activism here has been the R&D results. Uh, not in every case, but in, in many cases there have been, there's been better R&D productivity of late. And that success has also uh, narrowed the gap between intrinsic value and market value. But if we start to see some misses, uh, some trials that don't go as well as people are, are expecting, then I, I think that there will be, as that gap increases between intrinsic value and market value, we'll, we'll, we'll probably see some more activity going forward. And have you seen any change in the behavior of activist investors? Are they focused on opportunities for different underlying reasons, or are they looking at bigger targets today? Are, are companies vulnerable today that may not have been several years ago? Uh, yeah, I think I think all of the above. I think we've seen a shift, and our, our paper addresses this uh, as well, um, from uh, focusing on smaller companies where the issue's been around governance or or uh, including executive comp uh, and or driving driving a sale a sale to a third party of the whole company in in the recent few years we've seen an increase in in the size of targets and we present some data in the paper um, that, that activists have been going after and they've been uh, for different reasons I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, operational performance so improving the cost structure which is clearly uh, clearly an issue for some companies there's also been a focus on uh, in particular on R&D spend and R&D funding allocations. Uh, and, and there's also been a lot more focus on the business portfolio saying, well, you're, you're really two different companies that don't need to be together. You ought to separate these. Maybe in one case we saw uh, an activist advocating for a separation of the company into its sort of marketed, more, more stable, predictable marketed products. And then the more sort of uh, volatile R&D intensive um, part of the business that they were advocating for a separation of those two. So the, the arguments, the, the, the theses have changed for, for investing in the part of activists, uh, and also the size has, has been ratcheted up over the last few years. There's a, a series of questions you suggest that management teams should use to challenge their assumptions and think more like activist shareholders. Could, could you walk us through those? Um, sure. They, I've already covered a, a few of them, but, um, let me just recap from the beginning. One is, is the, is the, uh, is the overall cost structure appropriate, um, for the company, for its strategy, for its operating model? And then, um, as, uh, as sort of a, a special case, a special piece of the overall cost structure is, uh, are the, is R&D being allocated appropriately? Is that at the right level overall? And then is it being allocated to the right things? Are the decisions rigorous? And, and based as as, as much as, as possible on objective analysis and, and stage gating. Um, the, the, a third question would be: Are the portfolio businesses worth more together than they are apart? And, and that could be uh, multiple businesses, say consumer versus animal health versus med tech um, versus uh, you know, biopharmatherapies. It could also mean uh, looking in more detail at therapeutic areas and, and whether or not a company can actually be world class in all of them. Um, another question would be around capital allocation decisions generally. Are they, are the, are the tools and, and the metrics being used consistent across the organization? And are they being driven by externally 
valid metrics, things like return on invested capital, things like total shareholder return. And then finally, uh, there's the category around communications with shareholders and articulating the value creation story, uh, the overall strategy the company has in place. This is also related to governance as well. Um, you know, how, the role that the board plays, how these senior executives are compensated, uh, are, are, is compensation aligned with performance and, and so that it's aligned with uh, long-term investors as well. So th- th- those would be the major questions I think people ought to have in mind if they're going to think like an activist, if you will. Well, there are a series of triggers for shareholder activism in this regard, including operation performance, R&D cycle, capital structure, and the business portfolio, as you've mentioned. I'd like to focus on the issue of R&D. It seems to me the issue of R&D spending is more complicated than looking at it in relation to sales. It's more a question of R&D efficiency and how much a company actually spends to bring a drug to market relative to the sales that product generates. Despite the disclosures public companies make, I think this data continues to be relatively opaque. However, there there have been studies that suggest there's huge discrepancies among big companies over how efficient their R&D engines are. How easily can companies benchmark themselves in this regard, and how well can investors compare companies in, in this relation? Oh, that's a great question, and you're right, it is very complicated, and, you know, you need to look at things on a, you know, very much down to a therapeutic basis. Um, I think that it's, as much as, you know, we'd like to look at statistics and and benchmark across companies, I I think the other thing that investors would be looking for is the process. How how is our, you know, what what are the, the tools and the methodologies What's the, you know, people within the organization, how are roles allocated and how are those decisions made to, to, uh, to fund certain R&D projects? I think we, we see a whole spectrum, uh, in our work between sort of very subjective betting on the science and that's about it, all the way to people who go to the other end of the spectrum in terms of, of overly quantifying and, uh, maybe even in setting executive comp on the basis of the, the expected net present value of the pipeline. I mean, that, that sounds great in theory. Um, but given all the uncertainty with, uh, with, you know, probably assigning probabilities of, of technical success, uh, to adjust the revenues of picking discount rates, it's, uh, it, it becomes, uh, if you rely too much on the numbers, um, you know, it can be, it can be overly arbitrary as well. So there's a mix between pure judgment and, and over-focus on the numbers. And I think each company has to be, uh, a judge, judge on its own, as a, on merits and the basis of where it's trying to operate. Um, but you, I think your, your question implies that there could be a little bit more disclosure, a little bit more discussion about that, um, in, in, in companies describing how they make those decisions. So I, I would agree with you on, on, on that point. Well, we have seen a push toward greater outsourcing of early-stage R&D among large companies. Any sense how this strategy has paid off, and are, are companies better at picking winners than creating them themselves? Uh, I, I don't think I have definitive data on that, but I think there's um, you know growing realization that a good mix between you know internal uh, early discovery and, uh, and, and a healthy mix of, of externalization it seems to be, be working. It keeps people, uh, you know, more focused on you know, ju- judging their internal projects in a, in a more objective way because they have some external, external benchmarks to compare them to. 
Well, as, as we see more companies pursuing an outsource strategy, values change with the competition for assets. Any sign this is distorting values? That's a very good question. Um, so I'm not sure I could say distorting value, but certainly uh, we, we've seen prices uh, across the board, um, larger companies, smaller companies, Desirable targets, desirable assets have been uh, have been ratcheting up for quite a while now, um, with with no apparent end in sight. And this is a function of uh, many different things. I'm sure you're aware that the, the science seems to be m- much better if we're thinking about the, you know, w- w- one marketplace, which is the biotech IPO marketplace. The science seems to be better uh, than it was the last time around in the 1999 time period. Uh, investors, even generalists, seem to be a little bit more. Um, uh, d- d- deliberate in their evaluation of companies, uh, and, and so you know it's it's harder to see that there's there's as, as maybe as big a bubble as there was before. There certainly are elevated prices, but there are some secular trends driving driving this you know as well. In terms of I, we think clients, we think that the companies that are doing the acquiring um, are are being a bit more strategic and looking for. Um, assets in their sweet spot. There's been more more focus by therapeutic area in the past few years too. So that that bodes uh, a little bit better for uh, more rational deal making. But there's no question that prices have gotten very high, and the stakes have risen in terms of being able to generate an adequate return from from some of these acquisitions that that are being done these days. You talk about companies benefiting from looking at virtual carve outs and the need for companies to consider whether. The parts are greater than the whole. In practice, it seems we've seen more of these. How, how have they worked out for companies? And, and do you see this as a trend going forward? You, you're acting. You're asking specifically about some of the divestitures that have been done over yeah. the last few years. Yeah, I, I, it's worked out quite well. And, and it, I think in the vast majority of cases, um, investors have rewarded people who who uh, focus their portfolios more. You know, we, we talk in the paper about what so-called, you know, exchange of assets between Novartis and GSK. Um, we're, we're both increased, you know, decreased the number of, of businesses in which they're operating, but in the ones they stayed in, they, they sort of doubled down, if you will. So we, we've seen quite a bit of that over the last few years as companies focusing more and more. There are certainly exceptions to that. There's still some diversified. Uh, more diversified companies out there, but the trend is definitely toward more focus for a whole variety of reasons. But to, to go to your initial question, I think investors have rewarded those kinds of moves um, uh, quite well over the last several years. Jeff Green, Global Life Sciences Transaction Advisory Service Leader for EY. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.